Hi, I'm Jane Garvey. And I'm Fee Glover. Off Air with Jane and Fee is going live. We are taking to the stage at the amazing Crucible Theatre in Sheffield on Friday the 31st of May. It'll be a night full of surprises. We'll have a special guest, we'll involve you in the audience and we'll embarrass ourselves. You really won't want to miss it. Well, the surprises, we don't yet know what's in it, so it genuinely is a night of surprises. Well, you've surprised me already. Uh, it's not just us. Our live show is part of an exciting new podcast festival called Cross wires which is taking place in some really amazing venues across sheffield from the 31st of may to the 2nd of june so other podcasters that you'll be able to see include katie price Catherine ryan ramash ranganathan and the original adam buxton but there's also a whole host of free fringe events family shows surprise acts and after parties that jane and i haven't yet been invited to I'm sure it's only a matter of time. Head to crosswires.live for tickets and more information. Hello and welcome to the Game Podcast from The Times. I'm Gabriel Marcotti and I thank you for joining us on these overcast and rainy and rather unpleasant Thursday. It's made all the more unpleasant by the fact that, sorry, got to put up with me on my own, with no Natalie Sawyer. She's going to be back on Monday. It's T-minus four days to Natalie's return, and we are all counting down the hours. But with me in the studio today, I'm excited to be joined by Alison Rod. You've made me stop eating my rice cake. And also in the studio, it's Alan Smith. I'm waiting for the Irish reference. No, 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 no. It's just, it's, uh, Alan Smith is a very common name. And down the line, it's the Times chief football writer, Henry Winter, who, of course, is on the road, as you'd expect, and is very kindly pulled over. Is it, is it a lay-by or, or a service station? A bit of both. Hi, Gap. Hi, Alan. Hi, Alison. Thank you, Alison, for your rice cakes last night. Kept me going at, uh, at Spurs. I'm obsessed with rice cakes. <laughs> you are. It's extraordinary, isn't it? It's funny that you bring it up because she actually brought some in today. Um, and she was sharing them around. around. No, but I didn't realize you ate them in the night, in the evening. Why don't we give them a plug here? What, 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 what's the brand called? Do you think we'll get a sponsorship deal? I don't off, know. Off Metcalf's Rice Cakes. Yes. Metcalf's <laughs> Rice Cakes, which um, I was say, my, my daughter likes these as well, but it, it, it's basically sort of a flat, round rice cake, and it has chocolate milk, on milk one side? Chocolate. Milk chocolate. Milk chocolate. All right. Do you prefer the sweet or savoury versions? Because you can get, like, barbecue versions. You can get, like, sweet caramel. Who eats the very savory different. rice cakes? They're not good like this. Quite nice barbecue flavour. It's quite... Sacrilege. They're nice, but they're hobnobs without the fun. <laughs> Don't say that. Unless Mr. Hobnob, unless those guys. Is it McVitie's? Like, unless they want to sponsor us, too. Anyway... <laughs> Later on, we'll be discussing life at Tottenham's new home, and Neil Warnock is angry again. But we start with the reigning champions, Manchester City, who returned to the top of the Premier League with a routine 2-0 victory over Cardiff last night. Next up, it's going to be Brighton in the FA Cup semi-final on Saturday. Uh, They have a bazillion fixtures. They've already won one trophy this season. Henry, the quadruple is still very much on for Pep Guardiola. Your thoughts? Well, we're absolutely obsessed with it in the media, and I understand the sort of you know the historical significance of it, and you know there'll be books written on it. But if you talk to people at Manchester City, this old cliche of taking each game as it comes, they really do work like that. 
think, you know, occasionally they look at the bigger picture, but they also, they are, they're professional. They would just focus on these 90 minutes and exclude everything else. So, uh, yeah, no, I don't, I mean, of course they can do it because they've got the greatest coach in the world. They've got the momentum. They've got the squad depth. You saw Phil Foden last night. They've got, for me, the, the footballer of the year in, in Raheem Sterling. And the crazy thing is, is that Raheem Sterling maybe voted the Football Rights Association player of the year unless there's a, a late push for, for Van Dijk and yet Raheem Sterling might not even get Manchester City's player of the year which arguably could go to Bernardo Silva or Aguero ahead of him so uh, they're just you know they're the team for reasons and why can't they do the quadruple but the most important thing is is that they will be focusing game by game competition by competition so Henry just listed Manchester City's uh, uh, riches and everything and on top of that Hey, look, guess who came on and scored from an impossible angle last night? Kevin De Bruyne. Allison, it's kind of like you sort of forget about him. And they've basically gotten this far with, with very little in terms of contribution from him because he's been injured. I mean, Henry pointed out the irony that, that Sterling is a lot of people's player of the season, but he might not be City's player of the season. It's also strange that in any other team, the De Bruyne dilemma would be an issue. It might even be a debilitating issue because he is... So astonishingly gifted, but injuries and the manager's decision that he knows best how to handle how he comes back into the team has meant that we've just not seen enough of him. And when we have, sometimes he's looked relatively quiet, um, not completely match fit or, 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 you know, on on peak form. And yet he will occasionally give us these glimpses of, of how well we know he can play. But because Guardiola commands such respect, it's, you know, his way or you don't bother at City. And because they have so many gifted players, we did all think, oh, you know, they'd really miss De Bruyne. And they don't. They just don't. They definitely do not miss him. It, it's, it, it is quite seamless the way players, especially the midfielders, can just you know, ease in, ease out, and you hardly know the difference. They often, often look very similar to each other. Henry, we're going to be talking about Tottenham's new ground in a minute, but just while we're on City, because this is something that really strikes me, and I'd love to get your view on it and whether you think it's just nonsense. Personally, I think it is just that. It's, it's nonsense, so I'll preempt you with that. But other clubs, especially United and Liverpool, uh, their fans love to wind up City, and it happened again last night by taking pictures of empty seats at the Etihad and, and whatnot and highlighting attendances and supposed how then, you know, it's not as full as it should be and blah, blah, blah. My view is that just because there's a lot of you doesn't make you better. It simply means there's just more of you. If you're shitty, what, <laughs> would you be annoyed? Well, then you have to rise above it and, and realize that it's rooted in jealousy and maybe a tweak of fear because everyone can see the direction of travel that Manchester City are going on. They can see the... Uh, Decreasing numbers of uh, kids who are wearing Manchester City shirts around the country, not simply uh, in Manchester, but also around the world, because they can see the uh, the attraction. Because they want to watch good football, they want to watch the characters that Manchester City have got in 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 their team. And I think if you if you strip the, the demographics or age groups down. Manchester City are appealing to, uh, and that's partly their marketing, but but primarily the quality of their football and the individual players. Kids will warm to a player like Bernardo Silva. They love players like Raheem Sterling. They love Sergio Aguero. I mean, there's, you know, a, a, you know, a real sort of top sporting psychologist might actually be able to look into it. But a lot of kids, it's like when Michael Owen came through. 
they did all this research into why Michael Owen is so appealed to kids. And it was because he was almost this sort of cartoon character, sounds a little bit demeaning, but he's got all this sort of energy and it was the size and it was the sort of the dynamism. And there's an element of that in Manchester City's players. And that's why they so appealed to, uh, to kids. So, you know, if I was uh, a marketing man or if I was uh, another club, I would be worried because of the quality Manchester City have got on the pitch and because of their appeal to a younger generation who are gradually going to come in, who are going to build for Manchester City's future. And also, you know, you're not, Manchester City aren't stupid. They're not sort of sitting around sort of saying, well, we built this stadium, everyone will come. They will go out and get the fans. They don't have the history of a, of a Manchester United or Liverpool. I mean, everyone knows that and they would accept that. They are building to the future, and I think they've got plans to expand the the Etihad. They won't be doing that if they think they're going to have rows of uh, rows of empty seats. I think there are certain sort of micro issues. They have an issue with UEFA and the Champions League. You hear it with the sort of booing, and maybe they don't necessarily get the sort of full full grounds for that. Also, you know, you think of Manchester City's hardcore support. You think what they've been through, sort of you know, 15 years ago, the type of grounds that they they were going to, sort of third tier. And they're now still here and enjoying it. I suspect it'll change over time, but I'm always kind of struck by, if you go to the city, it doesn't seem like there are quite as many sort of tourists from abroad as, say, if you go to Old Trafford, if you went to Arsenal or Chelsea. And, you know, that again, that will, will probably change over time when they sort of ingrain this sort of culture, history, whatever, across the world. But also, you need to kind of factor in that match day income is becoming less and less important for the big super clubs because... TV money, um, shirt sales across the world, which, you know, as Henry alluded to, there are kids wearing city shirts everywhere. You, you walk around London, you'll, you'll see kids wearing city shirts who yeah. don't necessarily have a link to Manchester, but it's because that's what they're watching. I know City have made a concerted effort as well to sort of look at these kind of new age things like, say, gaming, for instance, where they've got this sort of team of professional gamers where they view that as a way to bring in income. Henry, I want to take us back to to Raheem Sterling. You know, he didn't feature last night, uh, but he did very much make the headlines to do with the story that happened the night before in Sardinia. Uh, Juventus's 19-year-old striker, uh, Moise Ken, who, uh, who is Italian of Ivorian uh, descent, he was subjected to racist abuse initially after he was booked for diving after about 20 minutes, uh, and then he scored a goal late in the game, and he reacted by sort of going and staring down the crowd, which then led to, again, it wasn't a majority of the stadium, but it was a significant amount of the people in that stand uh, then further racially uh, abusing him. Sadly, that's something that's happened before. That wasn't the focus, I think, of Raheem Sterling. Raheem's focus was on what happened afterwards when the defender Bonucci, who I think was Juve's captain on the night, obviously a veteran player on that team, came out and said that, well, Ken shouldn't have been racially abused, but then he shouldn't have provoked them with that celebration. Bonucci also said, which for me personally, I thought was the worst part. He said, you know, I think the blame is kind of 50-50 there, which I thought was absurd and tone deaf. He's made some Instagram posts trying to remedy them. I don't think he has remedied them because they're pretty mealy-mouthed. Um, but anyway, Sterling then mocked Bonucci on social media, saying that all you can do is is laugh could you comment a bit more on on Sterling this season really kind of emerging as a more sort of thoughtful but also sort of more more combative voice in this discussion about about racism about white privilege um and maybe even a more mature voice in, i think in many ways well 
first thing is Raheem Sterling has always been a pretty mature character. I mean, people sort of look at him and, and the slightly inelegant way that he, he left Liverpool. But actually, those who've known him a long time have actually thought he's quite a grounded, sensible, pretty thoughtful individual, not particularly flashy or blingy as, as perceived. And I think people appreciating the substance of the man as well as the substance of the footballer this season. And you only have to hear what's going on in America, the way they're looking at uh, Raheem Sterling, probably only be a matter of time before he's on the, the front cover of time. Raheem Sterling's now moving into that world. He is stepping out of football. He's moving into, Gab, you know this better than I would, but there's sort of almost like a sort of Kaepernick character, but actually more people are. Sorry, just are really, sorry, sorry Henry, if I jump in, just, sorry, just if I jump in, um, just because people might not, not know who you're talking about. You're talking about Colin Kaepernick who was a former um, quarterback of the San Francisco 49ers who protested uh, against white privilege and, and, and racism in America by kneeling, uh, or initially not sitting down and then subsequently kneeling during the national anthem. And then his contract wasn't renewed and he couldn't get another job in the NFL. And he became sort of a, sort, sort of a symbol on these issues. Sorry, go ahead. I just want to fill people in who might not know who he is. Exactly. To be honest, you're filling in gaps in, in, in my knowledge, and I'm, I'm very aware of you know what the, the sort of the, the impact and the, the the symbol that Kaepernick is. And I think Sterling is is moving into that world, although there's actually far more support. I think behind America seems like divided over the sort of Kaepernick thing, which I think everyone's completely on side with uh, with what Sterling's trying to do. And look, there's an interesting development here, and not before time. It's, uh, a lot of the young black English players are feeling very empowered. And I think they've got Sterling as their leader, rightly so. He's a leader for the young white players as well as young black players. And there's a lot of talk going on. You know, you, you mentioned his post about Benucci, but I'm sorry, Benucci deserved belittling. I actually thought Sterling's response was obviously digging out Benucci over the 50-50, but also laughing at the whole crazy and almost mocking the whole crazy situation that the whole focus really in all this should be supporting um, Moise Kane. And yet people aren't. Look, this is not an Italian issue. We've had huge problems in, in English football. We've seen it this season. William Sterling endured abuse. We're still to discover exactly what the abuse was about in the incident at, uh, at Stamford Bridge before Christmas. So look, this, this is a global problem. We saw it in Montenegro, the sadness in the Bonucci situation, the experienced Italian player like him, who's seen a lot of the game, is that the players should be standing side by side on this. And I think they will do in England. And I think, judging by sort of soundings recently, a player will walk off and his teammates will follow him, whether it's in an English domestic game, probably more in a, maybe possibly in a, in a European game. And I think the reason why is quite simple. They don't trust UEFA's three-step protocol, which is for the referee, if they hear the monkey chance to, uh, to, to address it with UEFA officials on the touchline and for an announcement to be made. They don't trust the, um, the authorities, UEFA, FIFA, the FA, arguably the Premier League as well, to take action. So I think the players now, black and white, will be walking off. Do you do you not feel by walking off you're sort of letting the racists win in a sense though because they can kind of see in whatever sick twisted mind that they're affecting the players whereas I think the reaction of say um, Kane on Tuesday night where he's sort of celebrating in front of them Sterling for instance against Montenegro they're sort of laughing 
against it. And I, I personally kind of look at it and think that's, you know, a mature and sort of a defiant way to reply to it. Whereas walking off in the racist's mind, in some senses, that seems like a small victory for them. Well, it doesn't because, yeah. I mean, I, well, I certainly felt that until five, six, seven years ago. And then having been through so many of these racist incidents at home and abroad and talked to the people involved and tried to get into the mindset of the racists in the crowd, the only thing that is going to stop them is actually the game stopping, the focus going on them, the stewards going in and digging them out, the people around them, the fans, fans are going to take responsibility and say, listen, we want to watch football. And if there are 100 racists in our midst, you have got to stop. We've got to get them out of the game and ban them for life. It's not a victory for the racists if a game is suspended, again, whether by the authorities or whether because players walk off the pitch. It's simply saying that this is football and there's no room for racist abuse anywhere near football. And the minute it rears its head, and Henry's absolutely right, you will create positive peer pressure because other fans are going to say, you know what, much as I like enjoy, you know, insulting somebody, I just paid X amount of money to go watch a football match and you're ruining it for me with your monkey chance. That is ultimately how you get to the end of it. It's unacceptable. You cannot play in those situations. And if the authorities do not enforce the protocol, if they don't stop it, then I have no issue with, as Ancelotti said, as, as others have said, as Kevin Prince-Boateng did, what, like 15 years ago now? Walk off the pitch. I, I don't think that there's, there, there's any issue in that. This season, with your subscription to The Times and The Sunday Times, you can watch every highlight and every goal from every game in the Premier League. It's just £8 for an eight-week trial. Now, every Thursday at thetimes.co.uk, our very own Bill Edgar provides 11 trivia teasers for you. And here's one for you on this podcast. Twelve current Premier League players moved to the present club from one specific foreign club. This includes loan signings. That is five more than any other foreign club has supplied. Which is this club? Stick around to the end of the podcast to find out the answer. I like this question. I think it's good. Allison is Googling away on her phone and coughing while doing so. Including loan signings as kind of sway. Yeah, that... <laughs> Once you threw that in there, but, you know, my first instinct was would have been Atletico Madrid, but it's not them because yeah. a lot of those guys have gone back. Barcelona, but then realised that a couple of those players have also moved on. I, I, mean, I thought Barcelona too, but yeah, it's, well, it's like, oh, but it's also like etc. But he's gone as well, so and still yeah. a fail and troll, right? Yeah. Also, he says move to the present club from one specific foreign club. So a guy like Traore wouldn't yeah. count because he's moved since. Okay, so it's not Barcelona. I'm tempted to say that it's Udinese because of the Watford link. Yeah, but twelve is a lot. This is a good one. Are we thinking... I think Udinese is a good chance. Neil Warnock, the Cardiff manager, was on the losing side last night, just as he was on Sunday against Chelsea. Back then, he said Premier League officials were the worst in the world. On Tuesday, he called the head of referees, uh, the head of the PGMOL, Mike Riley, a manufactured referee. A robot, someone who struggles to understand the game. This, to me, seems like Warnock playing to the crowd again. But you're the qualified referee. What do you make of all this? Well, first of all, I agree with you. Warnock loves it when he's on his hobby horse and people sit up and listen. He, he, you know, whether it's Brexit or 
or refereeing, he will he'll go off and people encourage him and he just goes off and off and off and gets into deeper and deeper water on his opinions. But in the media, we love managers who actually speak, so it's, it's hypocritical of me to, to criticise him for having an opinion. It's great that he has one, but it, it was as if once he started, he just could not shut up about it. He's being incredibly unfair and very rude, actually. First of all, he's attacking people on a personal level about their their body language, the way they speak, their demeanour, the way they conduct themselves, and just, just throwing away years of, of a career by calling it robotic. Well, another way of describing robotic is just somebody who, who's, who's spent a lot of time you know, learning the rules and trying to do the best they can do. We get the referees we deserve in, in this Mike country. In case, who is well-mannered, uh, which is really what seems to really bug yeah. him, too. Yeah, it doesn't rise to the bait. Doesn't, doesn't rise to the, to rise to the bait. And he doesn't have the polite. big biceps like, like Howard Webb does because he's not a former cop. He's judging people by the way they... Yeah, he's, he's, he's just bringing in all... It's like it's playground stuff, isn't it? And why on earth any manager thinks the situation will improve by throwing insults at people who turn up, get paid a lot less to make sure your game actually happens. And I think we're very blessed that we have integrity amongst our officials, if not brilliance, always. But they turn up and try and do their best. All he's going to do is down the line is make more and more people think, actually, you know what, I don't think I'll bother doing refereeing. I won't bother doing it because all you get, you get abuse from school kids, you get abuse from parents and you get abuse from the people who should know better who are paid big wages to manage famous clubs. Henry, um... You know Neil Warnock better than the three of us. Can you explain this character? Because I, I I struggle with him. And is there scope for, I don't know if it would be the FA, or I guess it would be the, the, the FA more than the Premier League, to take action against him? I'm sure they'll take action. I mean, sure particularly they? with what he's... And what would be I, appropriate? I think, well, I think, well, they'll get a, a touchline ban. I think that the, the you know, that there's sort of two issues here, and it, invariably inflamed when Neil Warnock talks, partly because of his previous with officials, but with, with other clubs. The first thing to work, his rhetoric was completely wrong. And the fact that he then sustained the attack the next day in, in interviews, I think he did one on TalkSport, in which he said, well, maybe he should have punched him, or his wife said maybe he punched him. You cannot say things like that. So look, there's one thing saying something in the heat of the moment after a match when you know it looks like you know, that could be the game and decision that relegates them. And he's all fired up afterwards. I think there's an element of understanding then. But the fact that he then continued the attack 24 hours later just shows sort of calculated. And I think they'll punish him on that as, as much as his splenetic post-match. Also, his, his, uh, his words with the fourth officials during the game itself. But actually, we've then got to strip away all that and think, has Neil Warnock got a point? Now, he is seen in certain quarters as a, as, a, as a dinosaur. But this is a man who's lived his life in the game, who's fighting to keep... Cardiff in the, in the Premier League and if refereeing decisions like that I think everyone agrees that that was a terrible offside decision it, you know, it wasn't even close, it clearly was Aspilicueta clearly was offside you know, I, I do have some sympathy for him, I personally don't think the, the quality of refereeing um, in the last couple of years in the sort of post-Web Klassenberg era is actually that good I think we need to invest more in referees. We need to improve the quality, particularly going into next season with uh, VAR coming in. Um, so 
So, I mean, look, that would that will help them, but we've also, you know, we've got to make sure the people who are making the decisions on VAR are also good. And I just don't think there's simply the, the, the depth of quality at the moment. So I don't think we can hide, just look at what Warnock said. Oh, he said, oh, it's Neil Warnock, the angry uncle, having a, a rant because he can't watch his television program. It's more the fact that he does actually have a point. So absolutely punish him, but then listen to what he says. On the issue of referees, I think people need to do it. I agree with Henry. This is not a great generation of English referees, but people need to understand that it's a little bit like players. Some of it is cyclical. Refereeing is a talent. Uh, and it's also a question of training and development. And are they being trained and developed to meet the needs of today's game in the same way that they were maybe 10 years ago or 20 years ago? Um, these are all things that, that they need to look at. But we need to stop talking about referees, I think in general, as if they were just one unit with one brain because there's so many – so many. they're all different people, right? Different personalities, different approaches. I, I want to ask you, though, Alan, um, to weigh in on this. And also, I know it seems strange, but Cardiff City actually isn't Neil Warnock's club. He has an owner, Vincent Tan, who is there and isn't there. He's got other people above him who – I think quite interesting. They, they they choose to generally to remain silent. They said very little over over Salah uh, and that whole affair, leaving it up maybe for legal reasons as well, leaving it all up to Warnock. Should they go to him and say, "Listen, I appreciate you're angry. We're certainly angry too." But you coming out and saying stuff like this hurts the club. And the reality is, we're the ones who are going to get relegated. We're going to suffer the financial loss, and you'll be gone. You have a responsibility here. Should should they take action? Should they speak up? Um. The timing makes that quite difficult because you've got a little over a month of the season left. The next game is against Burnley, um, which obviously is crucial because if they lose that, you can't really see any way of them pulling themselves to safety. Um, yeah, and you, but sorry, the, but you if you but Burnley, if you, unless Mike Oliver, because he said nicely, he said Michael Oliver, he thinks is a good referee because he doesn't do things by the book. Unless Michael Oliver is his referee that day, who said, "Oh, Warnock said nice things about him." Referees are human. I know they're not supposed to be allowed yeah. to be affected, right? But it's not going to be possible. But if it's a Jonathan Moss. On the pitch, and he's like, "Oh, look! Look at these two managers." Sean Dyche comes out and says that I do my best, or whatever. And I've got this other guy saying that I'm part of the worst referees in the world. And he says it in public, and he humiliates me and my boss in public. It takes a really strong person not to be affected by that. Yeah, it's a bit late for that now, though, isn't it? Because the the damage has been done. And I think if you go to Warnock, whoever, someone at the club, and say, "Look, you know, you need to keep a lid on it," out in public and say, "Like, we don't agree with with Warnock." What we understand is a club statement, Cardiff City saying, "We don't agree that the Premier League is the worst referees in the world." Warnock speaks for himself and for nobody else. And love Warnock at that club. Well, maybe they shouldn't. But they do. That's why they don't say anything. And Warnock really? has never do, do been. Really? Warnock has never. Well, he says Who's he's they? never been happier. Vincent Tan. The, anyone connected with the board and the ownership. They okay. don't care about the controversy well, he, things he, well, that he says. They just love the fact he's getting more out of the team than they thought was right. possible. Let's move on to North London because Wednesday night marked the very first match at what is currently known as the Tottenham Hotspur Stadium. Alison, you were there. So were you, Henry. I normally don't get excited by stadiums. I get excited by crowds of fans and the noise that, you know, I, the cop or your yellow wall can generate. I think that's what's cool rather than the actual building itself. But from the rendition I saw, even when it's empty, it looks kind of cool. 
Oh, it's is beautifully it? designed, beautifully constructed, but ultimately what you said, Gab, will be what matters. And The most important element of the new stadium is the South Stand, which has 17,500 fans in a sort of arc, vertiginous arc. It's just, I couldn't take my eyes off it because I kept thinking they're all going to fall over. And who, who amongst them is going to throw up through just feeling the vertigo? They look really impressive. And they, I think they were to a fan overawed by being part of it because they were actually quite quiet. There was a nice roar when the, um, the first goal was scored. There was one chant where everyone was involved and you could see the potential for how intimidating they will make that stand. But for Wednesday night, they were just getting used to to being there and getting used to the shape of it and, and who they are. And I think they have to develop over the games to come a personality, if you like, what sort of noise and fans they're going to be in that south stand but it's a wonderful wonderful thing to behold and it's and, and, and clever too because we if you sort of ask people you know who what's the best atmosphere in the country and which bank of fans do you think are iconic or have the most impact it's like you did gab you'll talk about the cop you'll talk about borussia dortmund's yellow wall it takes a long time to 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 create an iconic brand for yourself as, as a fan base. And they've potentially done it in one fell swoop by just making it visually so intimidating. That, to me, was the, the highlight of, of what is a very sparkling hey, stadium. Henry, I want to get you on this because, as, as you guys all know, there's, there's a website that tracks the stadiums that Henry Winter has been to going back to the beginning of his career. And I checked it this morning, and the counter is up to 561 it's more. It's more than 500. You've been to more than 500 grounds. Yeah, I thought so. Yeah. I'll, 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 um, I'll give me next week off, Gab. And I'll, anyway, it, <laughs> it would take about grounds. a week. But no, look, anyway, anyway. You're, you're, you've seen a lot of grounds is what we're driving at. You're only as good as your last grounds. And I completely echo Alison's point about the South Sound. One thing I'll add to it is there's also, as Alison says, they're finding their voice, they're finding their feet. But they're also, they're getting used to having a different group of people around them. So for years, you know, when they were at, uh, at the lane, they probably had people around them who for, for, for 20 years, and that obviously built up its own sort of atmosphere, was I know sort of blocks of, sort of fans have sort of moved together and bought some tickets, season tickets around each other in the South Stand. But inevitably, they're going to be some newcomers, people they don't know. And so once those relationships are built up, I agree with Alison, the whole thing will spring to life. I actually thought it was pretty good last night, the, uh, the actual atmosphere on the South Stand. I mean, there were, you know, there were a few wars before kickoff. And you thought, wow, this is noisy. But the great thing is, it is being designed by someone who understands football. It's, it's like the Juventus, new Juventus stadium, designed by a Juventus fan, even though his office is in, is in Rome. This populace who came in to, uh, to, to, to do Spurs, they looked at it from a fan's perspective. And there isn't that horrible corporate ring which kills the atmosphere that you have at Wembley. There isn't that shallow rate that you have at, uh, at Wembley which, again, just destroys the atmosphere. It is like the millennium. It is very steep. It's a ravine. It's, it's like an ambush. You've got the fans, as Alison says, and she wrote about so eloquently this morning. They almost, you, you're worried at the top they might actually sort of fall off. But you, you, know, you obviously don't want them to fall off, but you want that balance of being so close to the pitch and for the sides of these great sides of humanity just to sort of rise up. And I think it is, it's for me, it's immediately the best stadium in the country. Not simply because everyone goes on about the length of the barn, that they've got pint glasses that fill from the bottom up, but because it's designed for fans. 
Yeah, but there is a very yeah. serious issue, which is you can't just buy chips and just have chips. They won't let you buy chips, even though chips have their own price. You can't buy chips. You have to buy what? You have to buy burger and chips. They wouldn't let me have chips. I'm, I'm sure they probably have more than one concessionary. I'm sure they're all more reasonable than that. Daniel, if you're listening, please, please go and sort this out. That, that's that, that's really that that that, really, that, that really just bad. seems absurd. Alan, the flip side of all this, I mean, Pochettino alluded to this beforehand. You know, with a stadium like this, you know, we we need Champions League football. Um, the reality is, and it's the vagaries of the Premier League. They're one point clear of fifth place, uh, Chelsea, and I think Manchester United are also are also on 61 points, right? But still in sixth place. So it's entirely possible that Spurs could finish with a super high points total this year and maybe even a higher points total than Pochettino got in previous seasons um, and not get to the Champions League. And there will be people who will go and they'll bring up the whole thing about, oh, look, this loser, he's never won anything and he's actually making Spurs worse. And I look at this rationally and I'm a Pochettino guy and I say, no, you guys are all a bunch of ignorant idiots because his resources are a lot less than other clubs and sustained success and whatever else. And But this is something Pochettino's going to have to deal with, right? Because you can't have, you know, this amazing stadium which has cost, cost a billion pounds and not be in the biggest competition. It is completely unthinkable. And I think the next few weeks, the pressure is really, really on because as a team, they haven't performed recently. I think some some players have really shown a dip in form. I know Ericsson seemed to step up a bit last night, but before that, I couldn't really remember the last time he'd sort of had a decisive impact in a game. And I think you're looking back towards like Christmas when he scored a late winner against, I think, Burnley or maybe Newcastle when that was the last time he was really, really good. And a lot of players had been sort of struggling through the past few weeks before the international break. There was that result in Southampton, we mentioned a while ago, Pochettino touchline ban, and they completely fell apart having been in the lead in that game. And, you know, that is really, really concerning. And I think you're going to now see what this team is made of because they have to finish top four. If they don't, right. I do worry for the future, for the well, short-term future. Henry, Alan Smith is very worried about Spurs, despite being a former Arsenal striker, is very worried about... Spurs' future. What are your views? So they've got the best stadium in the country. They've got the second best training ground in the country after cities. But Martin Ziegler just reporting this morning about their finances from last year. They made something like a hundred million pound profit. They've got some of the best young players coming through for, from the academy. I, I completely agree with Alan in terms of the here and now. They need trophies. They need to take that extra step. There'll still be that slight sort of Spursy feel until they do that. But with a manager of Pochettino's calibre, and he's not going to Real Madrid and he's not going to Manchester United in the foreseeable future, the future is incredibly bright for Spurs. Just look at the players they've got and the age of the players as well. And OK, I'm sure the whole summer will be spent with Harry Kane being linked to Manchester United and, and Real Madrid. But he's he's not stupid. He's, he's He is taking his career very intelligently and he'll probably have two more years at Spurs and then go to a, a European hot shop for more money. But I think everyone at Spurs can see that direction travel. Why should Ericsson leave now? Why would Deli Ali leave now when you've got this amazing place? Um, OK, there'll be renegotiations of contracts and Levy will be expected to uh, to, to improve the deals after a period of, of austerity with the, the stadium being built. But absolutely, I mean, there's such a buzz around Tottenham Hotspur 
at the moment that uh, it, it's the wrong time to leave that club. And I agree with Alan completely. They need a trophy. They've built this amazing um, stadium, but they need to build a bigger trophy cabinet and fill it. As you know, I'm with the Pochettino trophies. Or, what does he say? Trophies are for egos, something like that. And uh, but, but whatever. But that's, just, a, that's just you know. I really, I, I, I differ. I'm I'm right, on Team Poch game, on this the one. The games are about trophies. Yeah, so I don't think it's about it is. egos. The games about winning. I, I yeah, I, and I think the way you measure winning is is an elite. Uh, this but is a philosophical but, debate. But, I'm on Pochettino's side. On this I know. Side. I have been I've been Mo- very critical of the way, and I've been particularly cross when Pochettino says things that, like, about trophies when he's in the semi final or about to get to the semi final of a competition. To, to then say it's not that important seems to me to be very bad a psychological approach for his team. But having been at the stadium last night, it does back up Pochettino's view, which is it's being able to compete in the top four really matters because it was a sort of stadium where if they were parading um, the Carabao Cup you'd think so what but if you knew you were going to get top European teams visiting there in the Champions League on a regular basis you would think ah this is suitable this is what counts Now there's just enough time to give you the answer to Bill Edgar's trivia teaser 12 current Premier League players moved to their present club from one specific foreign club, including loan signings. That is five more than any other foreign club has supplied. Which is this club? Now, this is a club that has sold a ton of players in general. They got really good. They did really well in the Champions League. They won their league. And they just kept selling players and bringing in new ones, especially young ones, over and over again. This club has supplied players to clubs like Manchester United, Liverpool, Manchester City, uh, Wolverhampton Wanderers, Huddersfield. Only three of these. That's right. The answer was indeed, in fact, Monaco. Well done, Alison. That's right. Anthony Martial, uh, Fabinho, Bernardo Silva, uh, Mondi, Getzal, uh, Yuri Tielemans, Terence Congolo, uh, Jacabi, Ivan Cavalero, Jean Moutinho, Ruben Vinagre, and last but not least, fullback Antonio Barreca. That's all we've got time for today. Many, many thanks to our excellent guests, Henry Winter, once again joining us from Out on the Road. Alison Rudd here in the studio, and of course, the incomparable Alan Smith, who, by the way, for the many Alan Smith fans out there, in case you're wondering, he is dressed in full workout gear. I I was curious because I genuinely did not notice, but are you wearing shorts or do you have Lycra on underneath? No, they're shorts and compression tights. You're wearing compression tights? Not that any listeners care to... No, I think people people are imagining you as, as, as we speak. Is that because you were cycling? No, no, I was running. You run with compression tights Sometimes. because you find the weather cold? Yeah, or is quite, it to it's compress? It's cold today, isn't it? It's been cold this week. It's snowing, Com- it's snowing in places Yeah, today. compared to last week. Would you wear compression tights in this weather, Alison? Of course not. I'm a tough it's person. Also for the, it's yeah, also fair. for compression purposes. Well, what's the benefit to that, to compressing your legs while running? In terms of slowing down tiredness in your legs, buildup of lactic acid. He doesn't want varicose veins. Remember, you can subscribe to The Times and The Sunday Times as well. And uh, if you do that, you'll enjoy award-winning journalism online. Mainly from me. 
mostly from Alison, as well as Matthew Side and Henry Winter and all our other top writers. Enjoy that online and also on your smartphone or tablet. Just a pound a week for an eight-week trial. Search the Time subscription for more information. Now, we're going to be back on Monday with the return of Natalie Sawyer. We're going to have a little welcome back party. And also, the return of the Champions League will be welcomed by all. Maybe not so much at the Etihad. The game is brought to you by The Times. For more information and more podcasts from The Times, head to thetimes.co.uk. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.